So good evening. Did you notice it is a beautiful evening out there? Anybody notice that? Yeah. Yeah. And the big moon is coming. So I'm going to tell you a little tiny story that would only make sense to people who have been practicing for a few days at Spirit Rock. So last summer I was teaching a retreat here, and this student comes into the interview room. He's about a middle-aged computer-type guy, computer programmer type. And he comes in, and he's glowing, and he's laughing, and he says, you will not believe what just happened to me. I said, what? He said, I just fell in love with a lizard. <laughs> so if you've been at Spit Rock, you get it, especially if you're walking slow. And then he goes into the details. He said, the lizard was doing push-ups, and the lizard has this blue stomach, and the lizard was connecting with me, and I was, you know, and then he was laughing, and he's looking at me going, I can't believe I'm saying this to you. (laughs) And then the bell rang, and um, he said, I felt sad to leave the lizard, but um, he said, then I find myself talking to the lizard and saying, I'm so happy that you live here at Spirit Rock. May you and all of your lizard friends and your lizard relatives have happiness and safety at Spirit Rock for many, many generations. And then again, he says to me, I can't believe I'm saying this to you. (laughs) So um, then the really amazing thing happens. He's walking. It happened up on that little ridge. And he's walking back down the trail. And he said, everybody I passed on the trail, I felt love for. And then he said, I had never felt that. Just walking down the trail, loving everyone. So that love and that joy that he was experiencing had always been in him. It's just like it's in all of us. It's part of our true nature. It's just that this true nature gets obscure, gets covered over by all the stuff that you've been seeing, all the minds, wantings, and, you know, the grasping and the fears and the aversions, etc. So we come to practice to uncover what's already here. So when he, because he was was practicing, he was able to be fully present with that lizard. And when he was present, He appreciated, his heart opened, because his mind wasn't in the way. And he started appreciating the lizard in a way he hadn't ever before. And from the appreciation came the sense of care and connection and even a feeling of communion. And we call that love. So tonight I'm going to um, talk about joy and love. And um, I'm sure you've noticed that those two beautiful states, sorry, often come together. And sometimes you might think, well, I don't know if that was love or joy. It doesn't matter. But you'll notice once I pointed out, oh, when that bird was singing on the roof and you were walking up, and they were just listening to that bird song, well, is that joy or love? It doesn't matter. It's this feeling, this connection, this lightness of, of being. So um, a story that is filled with 
delight and love. You may have heard of an Aikido um, <coughs> master called Terry Dobson. Terry Dobson was studying Aikido in Japan uh, as a young, he was in his early 20s. He'd been living there for three years. <clears throat> and he was on a commuter train outside of Tokyo. And um, a big drunk laborer came crashing onto the train car that he was on and he was swearing and he was um, out of control and he took a swing at a mom holding a baby. And that unit went down and then um, they knocked down an elderly gentleman and wife. And so the elderly couple were trying to scramble and get away from this drunk guy and the drunk guy actually kicked at the old woman's back. He missed her. But so at this point, the young 20-something American, da-da-da-da, to the rescue, right? He stands up. And at this point, he remembers he can hear his Aikido master in his ear. I'm going to get the quote right. He can hear his Aikido master saying, Whoever has the mind to fight has broken his connection with the universe. But the um, young 20-something, he admits in this, he's writing it 20 years later, he said, the truth is I was young and I wanted to fight. I wanted to be the hero. I wanted to get the bad guy. And you know, he'd been doing all this training. You don't have any chance in Aikido to practice. So he stands up and he communicates through body and a facial gesture like he's being aggressive and he knows it. And the guy says, you know, you want to learn a, a lesson? And he was just, the drunk was just, and he's a very large person, just about to lurch at him. And they both hear, <clears throat> hey, I remember the strangely joyous, lilting quality of it. We both stared down at a little old Japanese man. He must have been well into his 70s. This tiny gentleman sitting there immaculate in his kimono he beamed delightedly at the laborer and said, Come here, come and talk to me. He waved his hand lightly, and the big man followed as if on a string. He planted his feet belligerently in front of the old gentleman and roared above the crackling wheels of the train, Why the hell should I talk to you? The old man continued to beam at the laborer. What you been drinking? he asked, his eyes sparkling with interest. I've been drinking sake, the laborer bellowed back, and none of your business. Oh, that's wonderful, the old man said, absolutely wonderful. You see, I love sake too. Every night, me and my wife, she's 76, you know, we warm up a little bottle of sake and take it out into the garden, and we sit on our old wooden bench, and we watch the sun go down, and we look to see how our persimmon tree is doing. My great-grandfather planted the persimmon tree. He looked up at the laborer, his eyes twinkling. The drunk's face began to soften. His fist slowly unclenched. Yeah, he said, I like persimmons too. Yes, said the old man, and do you have a wife? No, my wife died. Very gently swaying with the motion of the train, the big man began to sob. I don't got no wife, I don't got no home, I don't got no job, I'm so ashamed of myself and tears began to roll down his cheeks. 
The train arrived at my stop. As the door opened, I heard the old man say sympathetically, My, my, that's a difficult predicament. Sit down here and tell me about it. I turned my head for one last look. The laborer sprawled on the seat, his head on the old man's lap. The old man was softly stroking the filthy matted hair. What I had wanted to do with muscle had been accomplished with kind words. I had just seen Aikido tried in combat, and the essence of it was love. So you can hear that joy and love all through that story. You can um, feel in this old man there's a kind of irresistible kindness and a genuine inner happiness is just coming, coming off of him, affecting everybody around him. So I have a question for you, but you don't have to change your physical position or close your eyes. I'm just going to ask the question. You'll notice what comes up. The question is, would it be possible for you, not the person next to you, you, to uncover that kind of love and joy in your life? Would it be possible to live a life where you had access? I mean, not constantly, but regular access to love and joy. Like that, the, the description of him twinkling and his delight. Oh, wonderful, Saki. Could you imagine that for you? Notice what happens when I even ask the question. In, in an interview with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, um, the interviewer said, Your Holiness, is it possible for ordinary people like us to have genuine inner happiness, the kind you, Dalai Lama, are teaching about? And, of course, the Dalai Lama said, No, sorry, right? Kidding. No. Sorry, this is not possible for you guys. No, the Dalai Lama, of course, what's he going to say? He says yes. He says yes. Happiness can be achieved through training your mind. Or that's, as James said, that translates as heart-mind. Happiness is achieved through training the heart-mind. So we notice he doesn't say happiness is achieved through consuming more stuff. You know, which is what the message is that we're heavily programmed that would make us happy. No, happiness is inside of us and we get to come home to it through training. So, um, happiness and love. I started attending Vipassana retreats in the 70s and um, after some days, you know, I could, I could sit there like you can. I could feel love for lizards and flowers and, and other people and strangers and anybody in the universe, basically, but one person. One. Who would that one be that I could not feel love for? Yes, you get it, right? The one I could not feel the love for during all that metta stuff was this one. 
this, to this one, I felt judgment, this one is unworthy, this one has all this self-doubt, you know, it was this one just not good enough. So um, my teacher, beloved teacher, Stephen Levine, um, as I was leaving to go home from that retreat, he knew I had a daily practice of Vipassana. He said, in addition to your daily practice, I want you to do 30 minutes a day of metta, loving kindness, for yourself. And for me, this was like, you know, worse than going to prison. It's like, no, anything but metta, you know. Please, uh, you know. And I'm thinking to myself, he doesn't get it. You know, Stephen, you don't get it. I'm not good enough. The reason I don't love myself is I'm not good enough. You're good enough. You can love yourself, but I'm not good enough. So how, you know, I'm thinking all this sort of judgment stuff myself. And um, he said, please, I'm asking you, would you do 30 minutes a day, every day, of metta for yourself. I, I mean, it's like saying, Deborah, I mean it. So because I just love Stephen so much, um, and because he was embodying what I was wanting to discover, I said, okay, I'll try that. He also said, um, don't worry this thing about being good enough. There's no such thing as good enough. Metta reconnects us to the very essence of goodness itself, to the place where there is no such question as, is this good enough? So just, just forget the judgment of the ego and try the practice. So um, I went home. Month after month, I did not feel love for myself. A year passed. I did not feel love for myself. Two years passed. I got to give myself credit when I'm thinking of the story. I kept doing the practice, and that was because of my commitment to Stephen, and I thank him for that. Um, anyway, finally, after a few years, it doesn't usually happen like this for most people. It's a slow thing, building kind of thing. A little here, a little there. For me, it was like zero, 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 zero. And then one day, it was like time release medicine or something. This de- it all detonated in one day, one sitting. It was just this big opening. And it changed so much for me in my outer life and in my inner life. And it turned out that, you know, Metta became my favorite thing. And it's the thing I'm still talking about 30 years later. And, and um, for me, not everybody, but for me, love is has been my way into the infinite, the, the great mystery, beyond self. So, um, I'm a, I've been a psychotherapist for more than 30 years, and a meditation teacher more than 20. So I've been with a lot of people through a lot of processes, thousands. And I can sit here with so much confidence and tell you for sure these trainings of the heart-mind that the Buddha offered actually work if you practice them. If you practice them, they work. So, um, another story. This um, few months ago, I visited an elder, 83-year-old elder, who... um, had once been very successful and very active and very energetic and involved with the world and the life. And then about 14, 15 years ago, he had a massive stroke and everything came to a halt. He lost his speech, he you know, couldn't move, etc. 
they actually thought he was going to die for quite a while. But he slowly, um, with a lot of work, regained some speech. He still has aphasia. Um, He lives now in a wheelchair. He can use one hand. Um, But anything, anything like getting out of bed, getting dressed, getting food, getting, doing any basic life thing, taking a shower, requires assistance of another person. So I want to just ask you for a moment, imagine if that were you. If you were 83 and you lived in a wheelchair, and what I just described, and there's a fair amount of physical discomfort that goes with you know, having a stroke. Just imagine, how do you think you might be doing what are some of the feelings that might be your daily experience? And just say, what do you think? Despair. Yeah. Despair. Humiliation. Humiliation. Frustration. Frustration. Grouchiness. Gratitude. Gratitude if, yeah, may it be so. Good. Pardon me? Powerlessness. Yeah, I mean, we could go on and on with the list of what a lot of elders are experiencing right now in this moment and those thousands and thousands of wheelchairs of kinds of shame and there's a deep kind of shutting down that can happen where people feel worthless and isolated, etc. So obviously tonight I'm talking about love and joy, so that's a hint that this person might not be feeling all that, right? And I bet some of you know who I'm talking about. Raise your hand if you think I'm, you know, yeah, okay, see? So I'm talking about someone called Ramdas. And that person, just in case there's one or two of you in the room that don't know, I'll remind you of his story. <clears throat> he was a Harvard professor. And then in the 60s, he wandered off to India <clears throat> and, and wandered around for a while, several months, and then f- came across a great great with a capital G, capital T, teacher. Not famous, it was a hidden teacher, but um, a Mahasiddha and, um, named Maharaji, not to be confused with Maharishi, not the TM guy. <clears throat> and his life was majorly transformed, and he stayed there for a while, and then he came back to America and wrote Be Here Now, which was a uh, opening for a generation into possibilities of spiritual development. <clears throat> and then Ramdas continued writing books, great books, teaching, lecturing. Um, he continued, uh, he just did a lot of service, started various, many service organizations. And um, he was um, renowned and respected for being wise and really eloquent, being really able to say it well. And he was loved and trusted because he is so funny, such a sense of humor, and so honest about his stuff. So he was just out there with, you know, all his dramas and his relationship stuff and his neuroses. And, you know, he, he was hysterically funny about it all. And we could all laugh at ourselves. And he was completely clear that he was one of us. He wasn't trying to set himself on some, like, I'm enlightened and you're not thing. It was, I'm one of the travelers with you on the journey. And he would say, what Ram really means is rent a mouth, meaning 
meaning, you know, hundreds or thousands of people would be at some auditorium to hear him, and he'd say, we all gather, and then the collective wisdom, for whatever reason, comes through my mouth. So he was, he was always making it clear, I'm on my journey too, just like the rest of you. So, um, then, you know, of course, the stroke stopped him, stopped all that, you know, all that talking and everything. And it was hard. He was honest about how long and hard the recovery was. And he used, it was years and years and years of that, um, he used that, the physical, emotional discomfort as spiritual practice, because that was his commitment for a long time. So now Ramdas is 83, and he shines like the sun. He is beaming and radiating joy and wisdom and love, unimpeded. It's just, and there's like, you can see, there's no effort involved. Just whatever situation we were in, I was there visiting, so we were in different settings. Um, Whatever room he walks into, whatever situation, it's just lit up. And it was amazing to see. Um, So, 45 years ago, his guru said, he asked his guru, you know, what's my, what's my practice? What, what do you really want me to do? And, and Maharaji said, Ramdas, love everyone. And, and he said, I'm sorry, Maharaji, I don't love everybody, and I really don't think I can. I mean, maybe you can, but that's way out of my league. What, what shall I do? And he looks at him, and these are looking in the eyes of an enlightened person. He looks him in the eyes, he said, Ramdas, love everybody. So Ramdas did his best. He made it a practice, an aspiration. Okay, I'll, tr- I'll try. So now, you know, all these years, many years later, his, one of his most recent books is called Be Love Now. And here's a sentence out of that book. He says, love is not a trip from here to there. Love is a state of being. You can't attain it. You have to become it. So before our eyes, right in front of us, publicly, Ramdas has become love and joy and wisdom. And there's no missing it when you're around it. Well, um, while I was there visiting, they were filming yet another movie about his life. And I was in the room while they were filming. And um, the interviewer said, um, how and when did this recent stage of awakening happen for you? And Ramdish, you know, he's been honest about his process, so he asked that question. And Ramdas said, about four or five years ago, I noticed that I was no longer identified with my ego. He points a lot. And even to say these sentences I'm saying would be slower. That's aphasia. He, it's all in there. The brilliancy, the wisdom's all there. It's just the words come out slow. So he said, about four or five years ago, I noticed that I was no longer identified with my ego. I realized that my identity, who I am, where I'm living, 
is, and he points here, he said, he calls soul, he said, is in my soul. We would call true nature this seat of awareness, love, joy. Um, And he said, it's not that thoughts don't come and go, but it's obvious they're not who I am. There's not a story that I identify with as myself. And he said, and then if something really sticky or big comes along, he goes, then I just love it to death. And he cracks up at his own jock, and he's clapping with one hand, and he's slapping his leg. And then again, the whole room lights up and is laughing with him, just laughing with him. So, um, at the end, I'm sorry, where did I go? Oh, God. I wanted to tell you this story, and I'm really, I'm, I'm pretty committed to telling it to you. Well, I don't know what, where that one, but I'll get there. So, um, we'll get there. Um, because I want to tell you this thing, that while I was there, um, he was invited to speak at a conference on death and dying. And it's interesting to have a person with aphasia give a talk, right? But he can do it. He does gestures and movements and stuff. So, um, and he talks, just slowly. So, at the end of about, whatever, it was 45 minutes or an hour, this was a group of people who were not necessarily familiar with Ramdas. They weren't already in love with him. By the end of this thing, the whole room was filled with this light. And everybody was not just standing up like a standing ovation, but they were all, we were all doing this incredible thing. Everybody's arms were reaching like this, and everybody was yelling, I love you, Ramdas! We love you! It's like hundreds of people yelling, it's roaring. And the joy, and it was, I, was, I had tears streaming down my face because to be in the presence of pure transmission of love and joy, it was just. It was just so beautiful. I know that other thing. I'll, I'll hopefully get to it because it was a point I wanted to make. <laughs> but anyway, we'll get there. This is the um, love yourself as it is part of it. Love yourself when you can't remember that story. No, I lost it and I don't want to tell you till. Okay, well. Okay, so... Um, Okay, there is a main reason. I know the reasons. The very, there's a number of reasons I tell you that story. But the main one is that I want us to ask a question. I want us to ask, how did all that wisdom and love and joy open in Ramdas? If he was one of us, if he was neurotic, rent a, rent a mouth, and now he is pure love. How did that happen? Wouldn't that be important for us to notice? <laughs> we notice the rest of his life story. Isn't that like one of the most important parts of the story to get? So giving that thought, I can tell you, uh, as I've known, him, known of him for a long time, there's three main capacities that he's cultivated. The first one, obviously, love. For 45 years, every day, as many times as possible, in many different ways, he has practiced giving love. 
loving others, loving the world, loving himself, you know, creating whole service organization. He's practiced kindness and generosity. And one thing he's really practiced is showing up and being present. You know, he doesn't, you don't always want to be out there and for everybody, but Ramdas has, it's a practice for him. So um, he has been devoted, really devoted to the practice of loving. So the second capacity, or set of capacities that he's cultivated, concentration, quiet mind, and mindfulness, meaning he has done lots and lots of Vipassana meditation, this exact practice that you're doing for the same reasons that you're doing it. And the third set of capacities, and one that I want to focus a bit on tonight, is that he has worked and worked on how and where he places his attention. You'll notice we've been talking a lot about that at this Joy Retreat. How and where do we place our focus attention. So we know that um, mindfulness, as James said, and as we keep repeating, in mindfulness we become present and we just see clearly what is so in body-mind right now. Period. We don't add anything to that. So you might be sitting here, you might be tired, you might be having this start having a fantasy like, oh, I'd really love a double latte. It would be so good to have it. Oh, yeah, some chocolate and some... Mm, I think it would be probably really actually good for my meditation and my joy if I... Maybe I should just sneak away and just... No one will notice. In, in fact, it'll be good for all beings if I just go find a double latte. You know, this big, long, elaborated fantasy... And somewhere, you know, five minutes, ten minutes into it, mindfulness goes, oh, wanting. It's just that much. So it's not like, oh, I'm bad for that journey. Oh, I can't believe I did. It's just mindfulness just sees clearly wanting. So the amazing thing about mindfulness, awareness, is that once we realize what we're up to in our mind, we have way more choice of what we can do. So we don't necessarily have to act on the thought. We don't have to escape to Fairfax and get the coffee. And we don't even have to sit and go over that one a hundred more times. We could sit here and explore wanting. We could sit and return to our breath. There's many things we could choose to do but there's an incredible sense of joy and freedom that come when we have even a few moments of realizing I don't have to believe in or act on my thoughts. I don't have to do that. It's, it's a sense of, of suddenly there's choice. So Stephen Levine, who I mentioned a minute ago, used to say, you can't really trust your mind because you'll be walking down the street and you'll, get, you'll go, it'd be really great to have an ice cream right now. I'll go have an ice cream. So you have an ice cream and then your mind says, 
I wouldn't have done that if I were you. You know, and he says, you know, you really can't um, trust it because it's just got a mind of its own. So, so it's a relief. It's a relief to know that we don't have to believe it all. So, um, oh yeah, okay, this is, this is when I was going to tell you. This is, I got there. I feel this great, I feel a great relief. Yeah, this is when the person then asked about um, when, and he said, I made this shift from ego to, and he does it with his hands. I noticed this shift from ego to soul, what we call true nature. And um, the reason I'm telling you about that is the way, um, this is the, the practice that he did that led up to this significant shift from identifying here to identifying I am this. It's a, it's a major shift. Um, was a practice he calls loving awareness or I am loving awareness. And the way the practice works is that in any situation, so formal practice or just hanging out, whatever, mindfulness notices if I am in ego activity, if I am in um, some kind of reaction or some or identity, mindfulness notices it. So he cultivated that. Then, once it's noticed, he chooses to place his attention, to go from what he calls ego, and he places his attention in what he calls soul, and he remembers, he may silently say the phrase to himself, loving awareness. Or he may say the phrase, I am loving awareness. And he may say it many times. And he did that a lot before this occurred, where he actually became loving awareness. So, again, it's simple. Mindfulness sees what is so in this moment. And then, and particularly in this retreat, this is something that we're learning about. Then we have the choice. Where do I choose to place my attention? And he chooses to keep placing it back to remembering that who he really is is loving awareness and what he calls soul, this um, deeper seat of wisdom. He finds his seat of wisdom, awareness, love and joy all in his heart. So I'm someone who has lived many years with some chronic health challenges. And I can tell you it's way more fun to be loving, joyful awareness than it is I am a sick person. If you live, if anybody here has lived with symptoms or illnesses, anything can become an identity. And that's that's not a fun one. So it's a choice to reorient. Oh, I'm loving awareness. And I have to go rest now. It's a very different thing. So this kind of practice where we're choosing what we do with our awareness, with our attention, is not about repressing or denying the suffering, the pain that comes in a life. If there's suffering, 
we, of course, practice great compassion to that for ourselves, compassion to others if they're suffering. But this practice is about remembering again and again, remembering that who we really are is far, far more than our suffering. Who we are is loving, joyful awareness. So when Ramdas connects with that, it's not just a thought, it's also a, it's through the body. He, he actually moves his attention and notices a body experience as well as a, a memory. <clears throat> so to connect with joyful, loving awareness, it helps if we become familiar with the locations and sensation, the experience of joy and love, which is something that's been being pointed to here uh, the last couple of days. You may occasionally notice that. So last night, uh, James, actually for two nights, James mentioned the neuroscience where the, our brains are designed to pay attention to the loud, dense feelings, the fear and the you know, survival stuff, the anger, etc., And that if something like joy or delight or love or gratitude arises, it can be so much more subtle and quiet. It can be there and we can actually miss it. It can be there right in this moment and being missed because it's so subtle. And... So, um, again, as it's been mentioned, the neuroscience studies show that if we put more attention on these pleasant states, if we notice how they feel in the body, etc., do what the neuroscience call savor them, then we're rewiring our brain so that we'll have more future well-being. So, um, again, James mentioned that the Buddha talked about you know, savoring the gladness when you, when you are giving generosity. So here's just another of thousands of possible quotes from the Buddha to show that he was way onto this long before neuroscience. Um, he figured it out. Uh, he said, one should drench, steep, suffuse, and saturate one's body and mind in happiness. So he wasn't, you know, just saying, kind of, go for it. Enjoy it. Take a deep drink of that. Another way to say it is become it. So um, I want to do some exercises that are going to build on what Jane and James have done with this savoring thing about how and where we place attention. But before we do that sort of meditative stuff, because this is a joy retreat, I think we should stand up and be a little bit playful. Is that okay? Could we have a little bit of movement? Okay. So first of all, we stand up and just bring your attention. Let's close your eyes and bring your attention into your body, which you've been doing over and over. And then notice what would love to stretch or squirm 
and begin slowly stretching or wiggling and notice the relief. Notice the pleasure of stretching what wants to be stretched. Yeah. Yeah, good. I see some people taking deep breaths. You can notice the aliveness. You might notice, oh, God, I missed this about 10 million times. But right now we're noticing. It's subtle, isn't it? We're putting our attention on something so subtle. The pleasant feeling of stretching. So now for the part that's a little playful. And before we do this, I want to say, if anybody has any issues with ankles or knees or necks or whatever, of course, don't, don't do anything that I'm about to do that is, um, would, would not be good for your body. So I think it would probably be good to close your eyes for this because that way you might be likely to be more foolish and silly and playful. So let's start with bouncing a little. Up and down, a little bouncing. Good, good, you're good at bouncing. And then as you're bouncing, relax and uh, like, it's almost like you're a three-year-old and you're sort of exploring and learning like, uh, if I bounce, I can make my hand shake without even trying and see if you can bounce in a way. That's good. Oh God, almost everybody's hands are shaking. Good. Knees are going up and down. And then, You might wiggle about a little, bounce, hands are still going, don't stop bouncing, don't stop shaking, but we're going to see, can I make my ribs shake? So you might have to thump a little, or how do I make my ribs shake? Okay, good, now don't stop, now don't stop, no, keep going. We're not even halfway there yet, okay, so we're good, I see some people are starting to loosen it up a little. You can put your hips in. Eyes are all closed, so nobody knows. And now, remember, you're three or four. I'm going to ask you to magnify this times 10. Get it bigger. Arms come up. Hands are shaking. Elbows are flapping. Body is wiggling. You're great. If you need to open your eyes because you want to stay grounded, that's good. And now... We're going to make it go 10 times faster. Here we go. Faster, wiggling, shaking, enjoying. All right, hands, feet, legs. And then stop and notice. You can take a deep breath. And notice. What's happening? If your attention's inside, I see smiles on almost every face. Isn't that interesting? Notice that. What does that feel like? Is there some kind of amusement? Some kind of lightness of being? So notice, notice the, the, the big sensations. There's a heart pounding, tingling. And then see... Is there something much more subtle that I can notice 
And where do I notice it? Is it in my chest? Is it on my face? Is there any spaciousness or openness? Even soft, quiet delight? Just noticing with interest. And if it's not there, no problem. But we're just seeing, is there anything subtle that I would have missed? Especially sometimes there's a sense of like a lightness or an openness. But it's so light that we would just not notice it. And just open your eyes and quietly take your seat. We're going to continue the exploration sitting down. So once you sit down, please close your eyes again. Eyes are closed. And we're continuing to refine awareness to notice very subtle energies or opennesses. So we're going to, again, as we did earlier today, experiment with a little, what's called Buddha smile or half smile. Or just the tips of your mouth. Just go just a little towards your ears. And then notice... Is there any subtle effect? On the body? On mind? On emotion? Again, if you're not noticing it, No problem. We're just seeing, we're exploring, we're refining. And now we're going to take, you're welcome to continue or let go of the little half smile, whatever works for you. But we're going to take our attention into the heart center. That's the center of the chest. And imagine that there's a little smile in your heart center. And see what happens in your body-mind.
Imagine that your heart smiles to your beloved brain that you may have judged a few times today. Imagine that this smile pours thousands and thousands of little tiny smiles so that every little cell in your brain smiles. Imagine that your heart smiles down into your belly. This cascade of thousands of smiles fill your belly, smiling belly. And then imagine that every cell in your entire body is smiling, is glowing, radiant with this well-being. And again, we notice any subtle impact, any subtle effect of what happens when we choose to place our mind in certain areas in certain ways. And now, again, let your awareness come to the center of your chest, your heart center. And as we have in other practices, from your heart center, just let someone who is relatively easy for you to love or appreciate, let them come to your mind or come into your heart, or you may see an image of them. It could be a dear teacher or friend. But just let yourself see this one who, and you don't have to have met them, it could be Ramdas or the Dalai Lama, someone who you can feel appreciation and love for. And silently from your heart, Send them love and wish for them to be filled with well-being and joy. And imagine them filled as though they now are smiling. Imagine them happy and whole, filled with love. Sending them love. Think of one thing you appreciate about them.
appreciate them. And from your heart, sending them your very best wishes of love and kindness, happiness. And imagine them again, full, radiant, well, happy. And allow that image, that person, to go for now. And for the last few moments of this, you probably know what we'll do, is we'll take that same quality of love and kindness and direct it towards yourself. As you keep your attention in your heart center, opening your heart, to this one that happens to be you, this precious one, loving yourself just as you are, not needing to be in any way different, wishing for yourself great happiness, May I be happy. May I be filled with well-being. May I be filled with love. And imagine yourself filled with love. Every part. And as you bring loving kindness to yourself, notice what does it feel like inside when I bring kindness to myself? Do I relax? Do I melt? Is it open? Is it soft? Just noticing. So we become familiar with, we savor, we soak, we drench in love and kindness. And we notice Is there a location in our body? What's it feel like? And you can gently open your eyes. So we, just like Ramdas, just like the Dalai Lama, 
we can incline our mind, heart, mind, toward love and joy. We can make that choice. We can, we can choose to do what Ramdas did, was make love a priority for his life. Put it on the top of the list. It's, it's a choice. So his life is very public. It's an open book. Millions and millions of people know the story of Ramdas. It's a classic hero myth. Um, and many of those people might say, well, the message of Ramdas's life was be here now. And some people might go, well, no, the message now is be love now. And I think that's all true. But I actually think now there's another really important message. Actually, the reason I did this whole thing tonight is that Ramdas, the message of his life is it is possible for ordinary people like us, neurotic people who struggle like us, to become love, to become far, far more free. It's possible through dedicated practice. That's an amazing message. So I'll just end with a little quote from Ramdas because that seems right for tonight. Gives you kind of a feel for the way this is from him speaking so you can hear how he uses language and he does a lot of pointing. And um, he gets things down to like two words here and there. And um, again, he uses this word soul that we might use as true nature or essential nature. So he says, souls love. Egos don't, but souls do. Become a soul. Look around and you'll be amazed. All the beings around you are souls. Be one, see one. When many people have this heart connection, then we will know that we are all one. We human beings all over this planet, we will be one. And don't leave out the animals and the trees and the galaxies or yourself. It comes through in individual ways, but it's one energy. You can call it energy or you can call it love. I like to look at a tree and see that it's love. Don't you? So let's just sit for one moment, just a moment. You don't have to change position. Okay, well, thank you for your attention. So there'll be about almost 20 minutes for walking, 18 minutes. Then there'll be another sitting in here. So have a lovely evening out under that big moon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.